in the letter of Jude. We are drawing to a close uh, what has been now two months worth of observation from this short little one chapter book. Uh, We haven't done this for a few weeks, so why don't we read it from the top, Uh, recognizing that today we'll focus our attention squarely on verses 17 uh, and then just dipping our toes all the way through verse 21. Uh, But let's take it in, shall we? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, that's you, Beloved in God the Father, that's you, and kept for Jesus Christ, that's you. Amen? Called, beloved, that means dear, dearly loved, and kept, he holds you. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For, or because, I made this change of plans because people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who didn't believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of that the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in spite of these warnings throughout history, in like manner, these people also, relying on their own dreams, defile the flesh reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Remember, that's the angels who had charge over the communication of the scriptures. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, These people speak irreverently, unlike even the angel Michael would. They blaspheme what they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These These who have crept in, who pervert the grace of Jesus Christ, who teach false things, these are, they're like hidden reefs in the ocean at your love feasts, wrecking boats, 
unseen, as they feast with you without fear. They're shepherds feeding themselves instead of feeding the flock. They're waterless clouds promising nourishment but delivering nothing, swept along by the wind. They are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, up rooted. They're wild waves of the sea. A lot of movement, a lot of action, a lot of words, but no substance, only casting up the foam of their own shame. They're wandering stars, unreliable. They will only lead you to, de- to a destruction. They will only lead you astray, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever, which is to say they're doom, their destiny is settled. Verse 14, it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. It's like he got into that word and he just couldn't stop saying it. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, These disturbers are grumblers. They're malcontents. They're following their own sinful desires. They're boastful. They are loud-mouthed boasters. And they do what the scriptures repeatedly forbid. They show favoritism to gain advantage. Finally, verse 17. But you. Big switch. Do you feel it? Big change. Description, 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 but you, okay? Now, here we go. What do we do with this? But you must remember, dearly loved of God, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, They are worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, dearly loved of God, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. We'll pause there. This is the word of the Lord. Gracious Father, help us to understand that which is foreign and ancient. Uh, May we, as a collective, sit at the feet of you, our teacher, and may you go before us, enlighten our minds, and prepare the soil of our hearts to hear that which you have to speak to us today. In Christ's name, we beg of you. Amen. may be seated. Um, We... We just did uh, four weeks on the characteristics of enemy generals, verses 5 through 16. Um, It's pretty gnarly, right? As you noted there, as we noted together, when we come to verse 17, the, the tone shifts dramatically from a description of these invaders to a call to action. And so we'll... Uh, we'll call this sermon a call to action uh, because I'm really clever and packaging is really important. I noticed that no one disagreed with me that I was really clever. Thank you. Last summer, a YouTuber 
which is uh, the, the most commonly uh, answered job when asked of young people what they want to be when they grow up. I want to be a YouTuber. I know. Like, all of us who are over the age of 30 are going, like, what? How's this a thing? A YouTuber who goes by the pseudonym Big Dawes TV, I cannot endorse his videos, mom and dad. I'm just telling you who he is. He snuck into the NBA Finals. Now, he didn't do it to watch the game for free. He snuck in, get this, through the player's entrance, disguised as a member of the Golden State Warriors. This guy is a a big basketball fan and a seriously impressive basketball player. He has the stature, standing at least 6'5", with a beard. He's got the skills to look the part, and he, he came through the player's entrance dressed in full Golden State Warriors warm-up gear. So he looks like he belongs on the court. He shows up hours before game time, before what's called shoot-around, This pretend player and his cameraman made their way onto the court where he spent about an hour working out, draining threes, practicing layups, jumpers, footwork. All the while, the security who waved him through, the arena staff who were milling about doing their tasks before the game, the real team members and the coaches all had no idea. I think he's banned from the stadium for life, but what a way to do it, right? (laughs) Throughout our study in Jude, we have been warned about people like Big Dawes TV. People who have the look, the skill set, the ambition to sneak in. Not into the basketball game, but into the church. Into pulpits like this one into seminaries training pastors, into positions of spiritual authority and notoriety, all the way up to the papacy and the equivalent levels of influence in the Protestant church. We've been warned about them. Jude describes their character, their identifying markings, their speech, their hearts, essentially. John MacArthur says, listen to a false teacher long enough, you'll know what's in his heart. He's always asking for money. But Judas described this, their speech, their hearts, and he has also described the effect of their presence among true believers. Hidden reefs, wrecking ships, wandering stars, steering us off course. They boast about themselves the way that Rick Warren did in his defense of himself at the Baptist State Convention last year. They come to the assembly of God's people to feed themselves, not to serve the church, the way prosperity preachers like Joel Osteen and Stephen Furtick live in luxury while starving the church of true spiritual food from the word of God. But they're often handsome, slick with the tongue, And they preach messages that are easy on the ears. So, they're popular. Instead of training the body of Christ to sit through boring sermons, they speak of new revelations. Oh, I've got a a word for you today, church. I was 
I was in my, okay, I got to stop. I'm going to get real condescending. Uh, I need to be measured, okay, in, uh, in how I talk about this. But the thing is, it's, it's offensive to the cross of Christ. It's harmful to the church of Jesus Christ, and it makes me angry. So I have to be careful when I talk about this. For your sake, let me take a breath, okay? It's boring to have a man stand in the pulpit for an hour and offer nothing more exciting than to just say, let's turn and see what the Bible has to say. That's boring. My pastor is teaching verse by verse through Jude. Well, my pastor has dreams, visions, revelations. Oh, (laughs) Right? It's been a challenging couple of months for us, hasn't it, church? In fact, one of you recently told me, after listening to a sermon where we talked about the prevalence, and I quoted the, the, the words and the claims word for word of these men. You said to me, after we listened to that sermon, we were like depressed. And that hit me hard. That's not my goal, you know? (laughs) But it was after that Sunday again where we talked about, you know, there are men who are in institutions that we thought were reputable, men whose books that we've bought, pastors whose sermons we've sat under, we thought they were legitimate, but listening to their quotes, it's hard to say that they are anything but false teachers described here in Jude. It's depressing. It was informative, the whole series has been necessary, but honestly a bit of a bummer. I knew when I spoke to this church member that that we would eventually get to verse 17, right? Where it's like, here's what to do with all of this information. But we had to wade patiently through to get there. What are we to do about this? I mean, for most of you, it's been, it's been weeks, week after week of warning, warning, and quotes of old dead popes and modern day heretics and everything in between, all the way down the line to the first century church. The question now, friends, is what do we do with this information? False teachers have crept in, disguised as the genuine article. They're on the basketball court of the NBA finals, but they're pretenders, not shepherds. They're wolves just dressed in sheep's clothing. What are we to do? Three words. Number one, if you're taking notes, remember. Remember. Listen to how Jude says it in verse 17. But you must remember. What is the first weapon, if you will, to combat false teaching, to living or surviving in an age of false teaching? You must remember. Remember what? Well, he says it. Remember the predictions of the apostles where they said, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. What's he referring to? He's talking about Paul in his letter to Timothy. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. 
Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Not only that, but Jude is almost certainly referencing Peter. We believe Jude wrote his letter some like 15 years after, after Peter wrote his second letter. But false prophets also arose among the people, speaking of ancient Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you who secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. So it was predicted. In fact, it was already evidently among the church when Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing it. Listen, some have swerved from the faith. It was already happening. 30 years after Jesus was ascended, Paul predicted it as recorded in the Acts of the Apostles on his way famously under arrest to Rome, stopping, if you will, at a little island off the coast of Ephesus. He says, pay attention to yourselves, this is Acts 20, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which, listen, he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Listen, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And then Jude you must remember. There's a saying. I'm not sure where it comes from exactly, but the saying goes like this. It's easier for a person to be deceived than to be convinced that they've been deceived. And in my experience as a pastor, both in reading church history and talking with so many of you and many others. It is nearly impossible to shake someone out of the fog of their own deception, laid on them by a seeming intellectual source. You go, don't you see the error? Don't you see the inconsistencies? Don't you see the lack of integrity? Don't you see, don't you see, don't you remember? what the Bible says? It's easier to be deceived than it is to be convinced that you've been deceived. I think for many of us, we've heard a great many things from church pulpits for a number of years that we didn't know were false. They sounded good, but in the end, they were myths, if you will. 
No better than pragmatic ideas born out of the minds of men. They weren't drenched with scripture. They weren't timeless. They were new and exciting and sounded better than what's going on at the dead little Baptist church down the street. Right? Let's be honest. We must now come to the hard conclusion that we've been duped been sold a bill of goods, been convinced of an idea that sounds good, but seems to only benefit a few at the expense of the many. The Bible's view of a shepherd in the church is not one where the shepherd enriches himself and a few others at the expense of the masses, but rather one who cherishes every member as the bride of Christ, the way a husband should cherish his bride. Therefore, As we wrestle with this, we must simply remember, listen, that the apostles predicted all of it. Whether it be our own years of being deceived or surveying the landscape of our culture, trapped in delusion both in the church and out of the church, we should not be surprised at the prevalence nor the effectiveness of false teachers in the church. It was all predicted. The first thing Jude says to the church after an explosive description of the false teachers is simply this. Just remember, church, this was all predicted. Friends, I won't pretend to understand all of the implications of that very first instruction, but I think we could spend the entire week, each of us, meditating on what it would mean to simply remember that all of this was predicted. I'll do my best in the next moment to to expand this to the best of my ability, but friends, I leave it to you to consider why. Out of all the instructions Jude could use to build his, his, if you will, his, his layers of response to this description of false teachers, why is it the first thing he says, just remember this is all predicted? Why that? You see, this has bothered me all week long, and I don't even feel like I've gotten a satisfactory answer to it. So I implore you to meditate on it and tell me what you uh, learn, because I don't know. I do think it's a, a bit of a comfort isn't it? At minimum, you know, this is me in my study thinking, well, if the church was going to be duped, deceived, if you look at Revelation where five of the seven churches, they're not even churches anymore, they're just a bunch of people getting together, celebrating heresy, five of seven, that's the overwhelming majority, if that's the picture of the church throughout the, the span perhaps of human history, if God knew it was going to happen and he predicted it and he told us about it, then at, at minimum, things are unfolding as they should, right? It's some comfort. And so that's the first thing I figure. Do not be discouraged. If Jesus and the apostles predicted this would happen, we should not be discouraged. Church history is unfolding as it must. False teachers will creep in. They will give themselves over to their lusts. They will be exposed for who they really are in the end, as we are noticing many have entertained 
audiences for decades under the veil of genuine Christendom, but in their later years, men like Rick Warren and Andy Stanley, the mask is coming off, and who they really are underneath is being exposed. You see? It's happening. They will expose themselves for who they really are by their own words. No one's investigating their lifestyle. We're just listening to what they have to say. They condemn themselves. They should be quiet, plead the fifth, and hope to keep their reputation intact. But no, they can't shut up. And the word of God, as Jesus said, will be like a sword dividing between truth and error. So do not be discouraged. It's happening as it should. Things are happening exactly as the apostles predicted. The Spirit of God isn't surprised. Just us. Only we are. And why are we surprised? Well, probably because we, forget, we, we failed to remember the warnings and the predictions. Oh my gosh, I can't... Uh, it was, uh, this is what you have, friends. You have Christian deconstructionism. This is the hottest new heresy, the hottest new, if you will, apostasy, is deconstructing from Christian faith into a, essentially a universalism, a unitarianism, where everybody is good and love is love and, you know, just all hold hands and sing songs and there's no holiness. There's barely any mention of sin. But what are people doing? People are leaving a faith. They're apostatizing from the church, from the faith, because they did not have in them what they needed to remember to not be discouraged they were under the influence of a false teacher. Then when they realize this guy's a phony baloney, it destroys their faith because their faith is not built on the scriptures. They had nothing to remember. It wasn't buried in their heart. And, it, and, and they're crumbling. And I'm angry about that. Because you know what they're also doing? They're also raising children to believe this universalism, moralistic, revelist, relativism nonsense. And they're carrying the name of my Savior into the public sphere, waving his flag with the pride flag as they do it. And I'm angry about that. That's my Savior. You see, friends, we shouldn't be discouraged, we shouldn't be surprised. It's all happening as is predicted. Not only has this been predicted, but these deceivers are promised to be judged. So what do we do about it? Are we to cast judgment on these men? Are we to declare them? Well, we're to unmask them for who they are, but we don't decide their eternal fate. Who are we? Who are you? We're nobody. We shouldn't be discouraged. God wins in the end, and we win with him. And in the meantime, be obedient. Remember. Be stalwart. Be steadfast. But of course, again, we cannot remember what we have not learned. Remember, remember, remember. Mom and dad, you're going to tell your 20-year-old, your 25-year-old child when they're raising your grandchildren to remember what you taught them? Then you better teach them. What are they to remember? just how to balance a checkbook or how to put stripes in the grass with the lawnmower, those things are good. I like my stripes. 
And when my son makes this, I go, hey, let's get these for him. I got to look at that for a week, man. But if we stop there and we do not plant the word of God in their hearts, we have lost it. We've given them, listen, nothing to remember. Right? And then we can't say, remember, remember. We've given them nothing to remember. This is why I love this little, here you go, little pocket New City Catechism, 52 questions and answers. Moms and dads, you have access to these. They're in the kids' ministry. Take them, put them in your pocket. I'm guilty of this. We don't do this often enough in my own house. Question 35. Since we are redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, where does this faith come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. Wait, faith doesn't come from me? No, faith is a gift from God. New City Catechism, question number 35. So the next time they think that, that they hear some idea that, that you've got to look inside yourself for true insight, they'll go, no, question 35 says faith is a gift from the Holy Spirit. See, you see, friends, one question, one answer, and it combats a whole host of temptation to the contrary. Well, finally on this, we must be willing to embrace remember sermons. So don't be discouraged. Don't be surprised. The, the judgment of false teachers is between them and God. But also, we've got to embrace remember sermons and lessons and verses. And you know what that means? It means like there's going to come a time when we're going to we'll have taught through the entire Bible, and we'll be back to Jude. And you might be sitting in that same spot because people are weird, and they sit in the same spot every Sunday at church. Mix it up, man. Get crazy. We'll be sitting here again. It'll be five years, ten years from now when we finally get around to it, and I'll be teaching these same lessons out of Jude. It should be better. It should be still living and breathing like a fire in my bones, but it'll be the same words, the same lessons. We gotta embrace it, friends. This is what Peter, Peter said about this. He says, therefore, this is Peter's ministry to the church. Ready? I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Again and again and again, just... I've read the books of First and Second Samuel more times than I can count. It's my favorite portion of the Old Testament. I would argue that as a young man, it revolutionized my love for the Word. It reads like an epic novel filled with character development and conspiracy and tyrannical abuses and prophetic words of divine judgment, massive battles, giants being defeated. And every time I read it, I'm enthralled all over again. We're reading it right now with our kids at bedtime. And they're getting annoyed with my lengthy sermons in between verses. It's so good. I know too much about it. I want to tell them everything. And they're like, Dad, I can't take it, you know? I'll go play with Legos. I can't take anymore. I read it again and again. 
And I'm enthralled by it over and over again. But you know what? The story doesn't change. It's the same. Same battles, same characters, same rise to fall, or same rise to power, same downfall every single time. I have two sacks of books, the books that I've read and the books that I plan to read. Once I read a book, I really go back to it. I've read it. I enjoyed it. I've read it, and I put it on the shelf. Hey, did you like that book? Yeah, good book. I remember a few things about it. But there's a whole big stack of things yet to read. I'm not going to go back. I've, I've done that. I've been there. That was pretty good. Moving on. But the Bible is no ordinary book. Right? We can come back again and again and hear the voice of God speaking to us, guiding us, advising us, mentoring us, revealing himself to us. We can come again and again. The words are alive. But if we approach the scriptures and go, yes, yes, I've read this before, especially in our yearly reading plan situation. Yes, yes, I've read this before. Genesis chapter 3, in the fall of man and the serpent, and what was the deal with the serpent? And why do we always picture him in the books as tempting Eve without feet when his curse for tempting Eve was to have no feet. And suddenly we're like, Whoop. but if we come to the scriptures and say, yes, yes, I've read this, skim, check, moving on, then we are failing to remember. As Jude, through the Holy, or the Holy Spirit through Jude, instructs us. Remember. Remember, church, I beg of you not to grow tired of the simple and plain eternal words of God. Grow tired of man's devices and ideas, but do not treat the scriptures like a book that you've read with nothing new. Beg the Lord to help you see otherwise. Let us be content with being reminded of the vast truths of Scripture again and again. Not the ideas of man again and again, but to soak in the wisdom and the beauty of the Scriptures alone and in corporate settings like this over and over again. Remember, remember. It's not always new, but it's always true. Second word. And we've purposely taken more time on the first. Second word is identify. <laughs> Again, verse 17, and we'll run up to 19. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. It's almost like Jude can't just move on with the application without taking one more swipe at these guys. Right? No, but what is he telling us? Again, just re remember, but identify. Identify who these people are. And you know how you can identify them? They're divisive. They're worldly, meaning natural. They only know and pursue. They can only seek to pursue their natural desire. They might use spiritual means to pursue those natural desires, but in the end, the goal is their natural desire and they don't have the Spirit. 
let us beware that we do not conduct ourselves in such a way that we could be accused of being like them. Jude says, identify these wolves who have crept in. They're divisive. Let us beware that we do not allow ourselves in moments of temptation and weakness to also be divisive. Let us beware that we do not skim spiritual things, but in truth, in our hearts, we know we're only pursuing our natural desire. And how do we know that we are not devoid of the Spirit. It's the most fascinating and mysterious element, in my opinion, of all the Scriptures. That your Spirit affirms that the Spirit of God is in you. It's like, but, but how, do you, how do you know? It's like, you know. Had a young man ask me recently, how did you know when you met your wife? And this is a crazy story because before, before we had our first date, I knew I was going to marry her. It's, it's, I wouldn't admit it to myself. I wouldn't have said it out loud. But I knew. I had been praying. I didn't know this at the time, but she had been praying. The Lord was answering our prayer, and I knew. And he goes, how did you know? And I, I said, the only way I can describe, I can describe it is like it's the, you're like falling into the most peaceful like release that you could possibly, it's like you're finally giving in, you're giving up. You've been praying, you've been asking, you've been waiting, you've been trying, and then, you know? And then finally it's like, oh, oh. It's like giving up. And that's, of course, stupid. Makes no sense at all. It, it's not quantifiable in any manner or shape or thinking. And yet the scriptures tell us that your spirit affirms that the spirit is in you. Now, of course, there are practical ramifications to that. You will know them by their fruit. Vody Balkan puts it this way, which I appreciate very much. Salvation requires faith and repentance. Now, we just read faith is a gift from God, but it requires repentance. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Right? The first words out of John the Baptist's mouth, repent. The first words out of Jesus' mouth in his public ministry as recorded in Matthew, repent. Right? Turn. He says, then the Spirit produces obedience. That's great. Now the spirit in you produces obedience to the commands of Jesus. So how do we know we have the spirit of God in us? It's producing obedience. It's also producing conviction. I love when my children come to me and they say, "Dad, I got to talk, I got to confess this is what happened. I I thought this, I saw this, I just tells me the Spirit is doing his job. No, my child's not perfect. Failing again, failing again, you big failure. 
What's happening? The Spirit is convicting. But these men have not the Spirit. There's no conviction. They can spew their pride and spew their heresies, and they have no conviction. They have no change of heart. Let us be sure that in our conduct, that we are not permitting words and actions to come from our lives that could be considered in concert with these men. We don't have anything to do with these men. So I gotta, you got to identify them. And then the third word is persevere. Remember, identify, and then persevere. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. And we'll go on. We're sort of getting a little preview of next week. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt, verse 22. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, even hating the garment stained by the flesh. After a you might say exhaustive, history-laden, metaphor-riddled description of the false teachers, the wolves in sheep's clothing that have crept into the church. Jude says, remember, identify, right? And then my own summary of these closing verses, persevere. The church of Jesus Christ will persevere. Not that you must. He keeps you, but the Spirit in you produces obedience. You will persevere. The definition to this term is to continue in a course of action, even in the face of difficulty or with little or no prospect of success. Now, church, on Wednesday nights, we just began a study of the Sermon on the Mount. And the first uh, attempt at a 12-week survey had with it uh, closing words of application. You are the salt of the earth. Salt is a preserving agent. The idea behind the church being salt is that we preserve the world from its sinful decay. The idea is in concert with the second law of thermodynamics in the spiritual realm. Everything is breaking down. Is it the second or is it the third or is it the fourth? I didn't look it up. Second? See, I knew I was right. I'm so smart. Gah! No, this, this podium, the, 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 the paint on it, you can actually visibly see it. It is breaking down. It's slowly breaking down. These pews are slowly breaking down. Everything is decaying slowly. If you fast forward over time, these pews will eventually become dust. Friends, everything is decaying because everything is stained by sin, and that is including the spiritual state of a fallen world. It is decaying. In fact, the scriptures tell us that it's going to get way worse before Jesus returns. However, everywhere that the true church is infused, there is, if you will, a bit of preservation. 
a bit of holding back. When you look at the parts of the world where the gospel is not, you see rampant spiritual decay. When you look at the parts of the world where the gospel was, but the church is dead, you see what? Spiritual decay. When you look at church history, and you look at places where suddenly the gospel was infused, what happened? Preservation, good, morals, the sanctity of human life. The value of honesty and integrity where your handshake was as good as a signed contract. And as the gospel is removed from the minds of the people, from the institutions, from the public sphere, from the the centrality of the family, what happens? Decay. Decay. And friends, if we wanted to, we could get... We could do another one of these sermons where you're saying to me afterwards over a cup of coffee, man, that was depressing, because we could survey this landscape of our culture, and we could go, oh my goodness, this is broken beyond repair. Continue in a course of action. Even in the face of difficulty or with little or no prospect of success. Okay? Just because our nation's capital is flying the pride progress flag, continue in your course of action. Be the salt, be the light, persevere, hold on. Don't be discouraged, don't give up, don't give in. Greg Laurie recently said, one of two things is going to happen. Either our world is going to continue in its spiritual spiral of decay, which seems to be accelerating, Or there's going to be massive revival. One of the two things are going to happen. Either the spiral of decay and the trumpet sounds and Jesus returns with a sword in his mouth, as is predicted in in Revelation. Or, or friends, hey, stop it. Stop that. We're trying to do something here at the end. Or, friends we'll get to be part of something incredibly special. A revival like that about which we read in history books. And when it comes, church, when perhaps that tremendous spiritual awakening like has happened in previous generations, when it comes, where do you want to be? Do you want to be full of regret Or do you want to be stalwart, standing, praising, thanking the Lord as a member of the salt that preserved the decay of God's good creation? I know where I want to be, friends. We must persevere. Well, we'll we'll pause there, friends, and we'll unpack this concept as Jude 
describes it in verses 21, 22, and 23. Really, the, the instruction is keep yourselves in the love of God. And then there's multiple ways that he says to do that. But I think for now, we'll pause there. Let us be sure not to merely identify the pretenders. Let us be sure that by our conduct, we cannot be counted among them. And let's pause there for this week. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Truly, Lord, we have much uh, to celebrate. You've given to us your word. You've promised to keep us. And then, out of a ridiculous grace, then you, you even use us. You use us to build your church. You use us to stop the spiritual decay of our world. You use us to be a, a beacon of hope and light for others. What a ridiculous gift. Oh, Lord, let us not squander it. As we look forward to the day of your return, the day of our homecoming, the day when you make everything right. Let us keep our course of action in the meantime. In Christ's name we ask and we pray. Amen. Let's stand for one song, friends.